This is Open Book, a podcast about interpreting literature, with Michael Elliott. Welcome to Open Book, Episode 20, How to Read Andrew Marvell's Poems. I'm Michael Elliott, Associate Professor of English at the University of Calgary, and today's topic is five poems by Andrew Marvell, the 17th century metaphysical poet best known for To His Coy Mistress in the Carpe Diem or Seize the Day tradition, in which a man tries to persuade a woman to sleep with him. But regular podcast listeners, specifically of episode 9, know that Marvell's subjects range more widely than that into nature and overseas exploration, and today we're going to expand it even further, looking at an extended simile of the soul as a dewdrop, and then a tense argument between a body and a soul who strongly resent one another. We'll then turn to a meditation on the temptations of worldly pleasures, and finally a complaint about the cruelty of fate. In this episode, we're reading five poems in Colin Burroughs' 2006 Penguin Anthology, Metaphysical Poetry, in this order. First, a drop of dew. Secondly, a dialogue between the soul and body. Thirdly, a dialogue between the resolved soul and created pleasure. Fourthly, to his coy mistress, the best known of these five. And finally, the definition of love. Since we're reading these poems in thematic dialogue with one another, the order of these five mutually illuminating poems is somewhat arbitrary. As we go through each of them, practice the core skill of good literary critics, of keeping the other four in your mind. Watch particularly for how Marvell deals with tensions in these poems between, for instance, earth and heaven. Also between the body and soul. That's kind of a giveaway. It's in one of the titles. Uh, another tension is between virtue and vice. Also, try to define for yourself as we go through them the kinds of poems that each of these are. Two, for example, are called dialogues. So that gives you a pretty clear sign of how their rhetoric operates. Their conversations between two opposing things or concepts. But... What form do the other three take? I don't mean metrically, I mean rhetorically. Make a note in your margins before you listen to each of my sections on them, and in those sections I will share my thoughts about their rhetorical form. We're going to start with my absolute favorite of these five poems, On a Drop of Dew an extended metaphysical conceit whose vehicle is the dewdrop on a rose petal in the first 18 lines and whose tenor is the soul in the closing 20 lines. The soul is, in line 21, landed on a human flower, so there's no doubt about what the conceit is. Let's do a complete reading and then I'll go through it in some detail. See how the orient dew shed from the bosom of the morn into the blowing roses yet careless of its mansion, new for the clear region where it was born, round in itself encloses, and in its little globe's extent frames as it can its native element. How it the purple flower does slight, scarce touching where it lies, but gazing back upon the skies shines with a mournful light. Like its own tear, 
because so long divided from the sphere. Restless it rolls and unsecure, trembling lest it grow impure, till the warm sun pity its pain and to the skies exhale it back again. So the soul, that drop, that ray of the clear fountain of, e of eternal day, could it within the human flower be seen, remembering still its former height, shuns the sweet leaves and blossoms green, and recollecting its own light, does, in its pure encircling thoughts, express the greater heaven in a heaven less. In how coy a figure wound every way it turns away, so the world, excluding round, yet receiving in the day, dark beneath, but bright above, here disdaining, there in love. How loose and easy hence to go, how girt and ready to ascend, moving but on a point below, it all about does upwards bend. Such did the manna's sacred dew distill, white and entire, though congealed and chill, congealed on earth, but does dissolving run into the glories of the Almighty Son. There is a real tension in this poem, a lot of sadness and pain, and then ultimately a sense of deliverance at the end. The opening lines see how the Orient do. Orient, I actually had to look up because I knew that it meant easterly, but I didn't know that it also meant sun-brought, and that is why... The, the dew actually arrives because of the morning sun, and that's what the next couple of lines are suggesting. Into the blowing roses, blowing is a word that actually here means blooming. So they are roses that have just opened up and have shown themselves to the sun. And the clear region, uh, the native element, so this is lines five, lines nine, sorry, eight rather, and then line 14, the sphere are all, and the skies ultimately in line 18 are all descriptions of the places, the heavenly places, the ethereal places that the dew has arrived from. Marvell is pretty explicitly connecting, or he's about to connect, of course, the, um, the, the, the dew drop with the soul. So there's something very significant or very um, suitable about the fact that this uh, dew drop comes from the sun. It comes from the ethereal sphere. It comes from the native element in the clear region and the skies above just as the soul descends from heaven to earthly bodies. The word mansion in line four obviously means a dwelling place, but it also is very often associated, between, uh, associated with the body as the mansion of the soul. But besides all of that, I think what really appeals to me about this description is just the way that you can imagine the, the little dome of glass, this sort of clear dome of a drop of water, round in itself, in its little globe, framing its native element that is, that is to say, reflecting back the sky, reflecting the light back to the viewer's, the speaker's eye. At the same time, the dew drop is gazing back, line 11, up upon the skies and is mourning its distance from them. That's why it has, it is like its own tear because it is so divided from that original place. 
and fears growing impure by its association with the human body. Keep all of this in mind when we get to the dialogue between the, the soul and the body. You're going to see this quite clearly. Then in the second half, you have a couple of echoes of this image of the reflection of the sun, or rather of the sky. This, these lines particularly, but the, the dewdrop expressing the greater heaven in a heaven less is a reference, I think, back to the, the little globe of line seven with its reflective surface of the heavens. Then you get Marvel using this word coy, which in this case means disdainful or distant, not quite the same way he's going to use it in to his coy mistress. In this disdainful figure, it excludes the world, line 29, in what begins then a series of contrasts all the way through to line 36, excluding and receiving, darkness but brightness, disdaining and yet in love. Loose and yet girt, that is held or secured. Below and yet bent upwards, that is tending toward the upper reaches of the sky. And these contrasts, I think, or rather paradoxes, are kind of trying to express the tensions or the paradoxes really of the of the immaterial soul that is given a material shape or form by being inhabited in the body and yet not being of the body being heavenly being bent that is tending upward and finally you get this closing second vehicle of the the manna the manna is a reference to the book of exodus when the israelites were fleeing egypt Uh, manna was the food that god fed them with as the chosen people and it would appear almost like dew like well like morning hoarfrost scattered on the ground on the plants of the ground and yet tasting sweet and so it congealed there on earth but into the god would then then dissolve it and return it back to himself which is who is of course embodied by the sun so at the beginning i asked you to think about the form that is the rhetorical form of this poem and i would say in this instance it is a hybrid of a description and an extended simile, an extended metaphysical conceit. In the next four poems that we'll look at, unlike On a Drop of Dew, they are about forces that are opposed to pleasures, internal forces like self-denial or self-restraint, and external forces like circumstances. Let's turn now to a dialogue between the soul and body. Both this poem and a dialogue between the resolved soul and created pleasure are about opposing forces. There's a very vivid opening description of the enslaved soul, which, as it describes itself, is imprisoned in the body, and then follows a counter-description of the body in bondage to a tyrannical soul who is motivated by spite, a very important word which echoes the word spirit because it's as if the body is itself possessed by an evil spirit. At least that's the way it would wish to depict 
the possession. Then follows the soul's response in which the body is preserving itself and yet destroying the soul. And finally, the body's cures, which may be vices, may be appetites, only actually provoke new, more destructive desires in line 42, where the soul actually builds up the body for sin and makes it nevertheless suffer for pursuing those sins. Let's read the poem now from the beginning. Soul. Oh, who shall from this dungeon raise a soul enslaved so many ways? With bolts of bones that fettered stands in feet and manacled in hands, here blinded with an eye, and there deaf with the drumming of an ear, a soul hung up as twere in chains of nerves and arteries and veins, tortured besides each other part in a vain head and double heart. I'll pause there for a moment just to say that the, the dungeon is, of course, the body itself, that the soul feels that it is enslaved or rather uh, in, imprisoned in. The paradoxes of lines four and five of the eye and the ear actually blinding and deafening the soul are strong inversions of what are usually supposed to be the capabilities of these senses and are actually things that make the soul beholden to earthly things and make them blind to higher truths, higher things they might see, uh, more elevated things they might hear. This is why there is a torture and a vanity and the double heart. That was a phrase that, frankly, I had not really encountered before, and it means a duplicitous heart. So you really sense all the way through this opening stanza that the soul is quite interested in depicting the body as certainly focusing and oriented toward the, the wrong things, toward deceptive things. Here now is the body's response. Oh, who shall me deliver whole from bonds of this tyrannic soul, which stretched, stretched upright impales me so that mine own precipice I go, and warms and moves this needless frame, a fever could but do the same, and, wanting where its spite to try, has made me live to let me die. A body that could never rest since this ill spirit it possessed. For me, the, the key line in this stanza, or the body's response, is 18. Make, the soul makes the body live to let the body die. That is to say, the soul is going to abandon the body. The soul is only thinking of its own immortality. It's thinking of its own afterlife. Yet, parasitically, it also needs the body. It has to possess this body. It's spite. Spite is a word that we, we might know quite well, but I had to look it up just to be sure that I had all of the different possible meanings, and it can mean a number of things, including rancor, malice, ill will, etc. But it also really struck me that spite also is quite similar to the word sprite, which is an, uh, a synonym for spirit. So this is an ill spirit, almost like a, a, a demonic possession or uh, some other form of supernatural uh, possession. This is a tyrannic 
soul, which, and there's a couple of curious lines that I'm not sure I really understand, stretched upright impales me so that mine own precipice I go. So there's this image, I mentally think of the image of a uh, a body that is skewered, impaled, literally, by a soul, and yet, and, and, and goes its own precipice, that is to say it has a danger of following, falling because it's because its center of gravity, it's, it's so easily pulled from one side to another, off balance somehow. It's a bit obscure. Let's now look at the, the soul's reply, starting at line 21. What magic could me thus confine within another's grief to pine, where whatsoever it complain, I feel that cannot feel the pain? And all my care itself employs that that to preserve which me destroys. Constrained not only to endure diseases, but what's worse, the cure. And ready oft the port to gain, am shipwrecked into health again. Not surprisingly, we have a series of paradoxes again. Line 24, the feeling and yet not being able to feel. So he has to suffer, he, it, rather, the soul has to suffer through the pains. Line 26, preserving the thing that destroys it and cures that are worse than diseases. I suppose the other paradox is this shipwrecked into health, which is a very odd way of saying that the body views its port, it, it's ready off the port to gain, that is, it's ready to be delivered from, um, to, to, from the body, to, by death, that is. But it's shipwrecked into health, that it is pulled from safety into danger. And that idea of medicine is going to recur in the next stanza. But before, let's look. This is a very difficult stanza. And the words that I feel like are most significant here are the, the soul is confined, the soul is constrained, and the soul is also care. It, it's, it's, it's covered, or rather, it's preoccupied with care. And so it is, it is resisting this condition that puts it into an obligation to preserve this body that seems to be so contrary, not just seems, but is so contrary to its desires or to its operations. The body's response is interesting, starting at line 31, but physic, that is medicine, yet could never reach the maladies thou me dost teach, whom first the cramp of hope does tear, and then the palsy shakes of fear, the pestilence of love does heat, or hatred's hidden ulcer eat, joy's cheerful madness does perplex, or sorrow's other madness vex, which knowledge forces me to know, and memory will not forego. What but a soul could have the wit to build me up for sin so fit? So architects do square and hew green trees that in the forest grew. This closing stanza begins by extending the image of medicine into all of its different forms of illnesses. Maladies, cramp, palsy shakes, pestilence, ulcer, and two types of madness. That at least is one thread that you can follow all the way through those 
those first 10 or so lines. But then you also, another thread is all of the things, the maladies themselves that are taught by the soul. That is all of the illnesses, the, the feelings themselves. Hope, fear, a series of binaries, by the way. Hope, fear, love, hate, joy, sorrow. The soul, says the body, has, has taught him, it, all of these maladies. And the soul has also built up the body for sin in a way that is similar or analogous to the way that architects build. That is, they shape into right angles, they square, they hew, that is, they cut and shape the trees that in the forest grew. They build with the young trees and saplings. Creating a structure, that is to say, in order to make it suffer from the things that it will desire, things that it will wish to inhabit, as well as the more negative things that it will, its memory will not let it forget. Much like a dialogue between the soul and body, a dialogue between the resolved soul and created pleasure is also about opposing forces, but in this case they are heaven and earth. There's an opening appeal for protection against nature's arts of combating one's soul's resolve, and then follows a series of appeals and responses. There are appeals of banquets, of food and drink, appeals of languor or of sloth, then of scent, Images, music, beauty, riches, war slash power, and knowledge or omniscience. Ultimately, the soul triumphs over the world. Let's now read it from the beginning. Courage, my soul. Now learn to wield the weight of thine immortal shield. Close on thy head thy helmet, bright. Balance thy sword against the fight. See where an army strong as fair, with silken banners, spreads the air. Now, if thou beest that thing divine, in this day's combat, let it shine, and show that nature wants an art to conquer one resolved heart. You can really sense in this opening stanza, this is the, this is the author's, or rather the speaker's, direct address to the soul. The soul is now going to have a series of of conversations or rather responses to pleasures offer. But in the speaker's initial address, uh, he uses quite a lot of military, well, really chivalric imagery, particularly with words like like uh, this day's combat, it suggests that it is either a chivalric contest or a display of some kind, but it, it may be more serious. It may, well, it is more serious. It is a, a metaphor for the, the continual combat, the military campaign that the soul has to constantly wage against all of pleasure's um, army, the army strong as fair an army full of temptations. And as I said, there is this then the series of appeals and responses. You get the appeal and then the response. They, they kind of re recur uh, repeatedly all the way through. There's a chorus in the center, but we'll come to that. This is line 11. Pleasure says, Welcome the creation's guest, Lord of earth and heaven's heir. Lay aside that warlike crest and of nature's banquet, Share, where the souls of fruits and flowers stand prepared to heighten yours. 
soul. I sup above and cannot stay to bait so long upon the way. I'm just going to pause here again and say that you can see that pleasure is saying, he's trying to disarm the soul, lay aside that warlike crest, that is to say, take off your armor and share in the banquet of food and drink, souls of fruits and flowers. Um, and the soul says that it cannot bait so long, that is to abate, uh, that is to break a journey along the way, the way that is the journey to, from heaven up to earth. Here is pleasure's second gambit to suggest that the soul should lie down and rest. Line 19. On these downy pillows lie, whose soft plumes will thither fly, on these roses strewed so plain, lest one leaf thy side should strain. Soul, my gentler rest is on a thought, conscious of doing what I ought. Soul sounds like a really fun person to have at a party. You can sort of feel like the soul is saying, I joke, but so soul is saying effectively that, that I'm not going to rest. I am not going to be comfortable. I am going to think about what is true and right and proper about what my thought tells me, not what my body tells me. In the next effort, uh, pleasure tries to offer him scent, offer the soul scent. If thou beest with perfumes pleased, such as oft the gods appeased, thou in fragrant clouds shalt show like another god below. Soul, a soul that knows not to presume is heaven's and its own perfume. Pleasure. Everything does seem to vie which should first attract thine eye. But since none deserves that grace, in this crystal view thy face. Soul. When the Creator's skill is prized, the rest is all but earth disguised. I'll pause here again to say that the pleasure here is saying that the soul ought to admire its own beauty. And the soul's response is that this is earth disguised. That is, everything is dust and shall to dust return. It is merely disguised in beauty. Pleasure then tries to suggest that music might be alluring to the soul. Hark how music then prepares for thy stay these charming airs, which the posting winds recall and suspend the river's fall. Soul then gives a longer reply. Had I but any time to lose on this, I would it all dispose. Cease, tempter, none can chain a mind whom this sweet cordage cannot bind. I think it is possible that cordage and chain and the musical chords and the accord as a union of parts are all certainly related to each other, and there may be a pun on cordage. You then get a chorus again by an observer who is certainly not dispassionate. The chorus is supporting the soul, saying, Earth cannot show so brave a sight as when a single soul does fence the batteries of alluring sense, and heaven views it with delight. Then persevere, for still new charges sound, and if thou overcomest, 
thou shalt be crowned. I think the word fence here means is a reference to swordplay. It's fencing the batteries. That is, it's the batteries are the attempts of the attacks of alluring sense, and it is fencing them. It is turning them away. But having just checked the OED, I can report that it means certainly to use a sword in against an enemy, but also to shield and protect the body, protect against those batteries. There's a promised outcome or reward, of course, too, that the soul shall be crowned in line 50. Pleasure then attempts to suggest that beauty would work against the soul. As it says here, new charges sound. This is the military campaign of, the, of pleasure, and it's going to try new batteries. Here it is in line 51. All this fair and soft and sweet, which scatteringly doth shine, shall within one beauty meet, and she be only thine. Soul, if things of sight such heavens be, what heavens are those we cannot see? I believe that all this fair, etc., is a reference to all the preceding categories, the sensual food and drink and, and rest and images and scent and beauty and music and all the other things that these are all going to be combined into a one single solitary uh, beautiful woman, beautiful object. And if these things be heavens, says the soul, that is, they, these visible rewards be heavenly, then imperceptible higher rewards that is of heaven that are not earthly will be far higher. We then get into a couple of more worldly uh, temptations. Pleasure really should get the message, but is not getting it yet. Uh, the first is for worldly riches. Wheresoe'er thy foot shall go, the minted gold shall lie, till thou purchase all below and want new worlds to buy. To which the soul replies, Wert not a price who'd value gold, and that's worth naught that can be sold. In another way of rearranging that last line is that that can be sold is worth naught or nothing. The pleasure then tries tempting the soul with power and war. Wilt thou all the glory have that war or peace commend? Half the world shall be thy slave, the other half thy friend. The soul replies, What friends, if to myself untrue? What slaves, unless I captive you? Pleasure then promises knowledge, or all knowledge, omniscience. Thou shalt know each hidden cause, and see the future time. Try what depth the center draws, and then to heaven climb. The soul replies, none thither mounts by the degree of knowledge, but humility. That's the ultimate repudiation. It's much like the things that are invisible are more beautiful than the visible. The things that you believe you get through human knowledge, you actually only get through submission, not arrogation of knowledge to yourself, but submission to God's knowledge, the kind of humility that that, that requires. And the chorus then sings its happy triumph. Triumph, triumph, victorious soul. The world has not one pleasure more. The rest does lie beyond the pole and is thine everlasting store. Store is that, that which is held in storage. This um, image, by the way, of the world 
and equated with the pole is going to recur in the definition of love. You'll see it shortly. But first, to his coy mistress. five poems we're reading in this episode, this is the only one not to use a particular word that the other four have in common. I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. See if you notice what it is, I'll say at the end of the show. The form of To His Coy Mistress is a three-part argument. Here it is from the beginning. Had we but whirled enough in time, this coyness lady were no crime. We would sit down and think which way to walk and pass our long love's day. Thou by the Indian Ganges' side shouldst rubies find. I by the tide of Humber would complain. I would love you ten years before the flood, and you should, if you please, refuse till the conversion of the Jews. My vegetable love should grow vaster than empires and more slow. An hundred years should go to praise thine eyes, and on thy forehead gaze, two hundred to adore each breast, but thirty thousand to the rest, an age at least to every part, and the last age should show your heart. For, lady, you deserve this state, nor would I love at lower rate, but at my back I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near, and yonder, all before us, lie deserts of vast eternity. Thy beauty shall no more be found, nor in thy marble vault shall sound my echoing song. Then worms shall try that long-preserved virginity, and your quaint honor turn to dust, and into ashes all my lust. The grave's a fine and private place, but none, I think, do there embrace. Now, therefore, while the youthful glue sits on thy skin like morning dew, and while thy willing soul transpires at every pore with instant fires, now let us sport us while we may, and now, like amorous birds of prey, rather at once our time devour than languish in his slow-chapped power, let us roll all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball, and tear our pleasures with rough strife through the iron grates of life. Thus, though we cannot make our son stand still, yet we will make him run. I said earlier that there are three parts to this poem, and you can really see the way that the verb tenses shift to structure it. The first is subjunctive, had we world enough in time, perhaps were that the case. It is the first 20 lines. Then in lines 21 through 32, you have the present tense shifting into the future, because this is what actually is true, or at least the way that the speaker wishes to depict is true. The current conditions are that time is moving quickly and death is approaching us. And then you have the imperative tense. Now let us. Now, he repeats the word now three times, and let us twice. 
I said in my introduction that this is a carpe diem poem, a Latin phrase which just means seize the day, which is really just a tactic of male poets like Robert Herrick and, in this case, Marvell, to convince their female audiences to surrender to their own male desires. These, the word coy here means responsive to advances, or rather not responsive to his advances. And in the opening section, he presents the conditions of, as I said, the love that he would wish to give her. It's the longest of the three sections, and it elaborates on both the world and the time. You actually notice all the way through that it constantly oscillates back and forth between world and time. So you have the, the Ganges and then Humber, which is the river near his native hull. Then you have time with the, the flood and the, the conversion of the Jews is something that was uh, an apocalyptic moment. It was something that was going to happen in the, the end of days. Then you have the world, again, vaster than empires. By the way, vegetable love, a very odd word choice to our 21st century ears and eyes, but it means ad, uh, it's an adjective that refers to something that grows, but in an insensible, immobile way. So in other words, in other words it means my growing love should grow, etc. Then you have time again, 100 years, 200, 30,000, an age and an age, etc., a state, by the way, in line 19, I didn't know this until today, meant a historical era or an extended period of history. All of which he insists, pretty disingenuously, by the way, insists that she actually deserves, and he would very, very much like to do it, but, alas, but, time is hurrying near. He always hears its chariot behind him before us, our deserts of eternity, that is, times of waste, times of death. We will no longer be around. And we have thus all of these references, this extended reference to, to death in the marble vault, the worms, the dust, the ashes, and the grave. Curious choices, at least they are used in threatening terms, very stark threatening terms, but curious choices if you are trying to get your mist mistress into a certain amorous mood. His word choice in line 29 of quaint honor, by the way, it probably in this instance means affected, uh, something that is not sincere, that is acquired, uh, there was an obscure um, meaning of it, obscure by, by the end of the 15th, or rather 16th century, that it obscurely meant a reference to female genitals. And it's probably the case that, particularly when he's been talking about worms and virginity in the preceding lines, that that is what he is alluding to. It does not mean, by the way, pleasingly old-fashioned, like a quaint country cottage, the way that we use the word now and in, in our time. In the final section, the reference to youthful glue, I confess, is giving me some problems. The Oxford English Dictionary does not give us any, any help here, except that possibly, it doesn't, it, except for the meanings that you think it means, but it also gives you the reference to bird lime, which is a substance that was smeared onto branches to check birds, and you do have references to birds below. Certainly, the glue might be figurative, but it's a thing that is, that is drawing him toward her. 
and connecting and fastening him and certainly his eyes to her skin. Uh, and her willing soul transpiring at every pore means that she is clearly flushed and sort of excited in a state of, a state of readiness. Um, now, accordingly, to let us sport us while we may is, well, it is what you think it means. It's the sort of thing that Milton refers to in Paradise Lost as love's disport. I will say no more. And in order to be discreet, and well, it's pretty clear what's happening, amorous birds of prey, they need to devour their time instead of instead of languishing in his slow chap. That is, slow chap means something that, that has um, a bit like, a, like, like, think of the image of, of, of toothless gums that are, are going to sort of slowly um, dissolve or break down something. It's not the most pleasant of images. And they're going to roughly destroy the iron grates, the sort of... Um, uh, sort of thing that uh, William Blake refers to as uh, binding with briars our joys and desires. That we need to break through all of these strictures and restrictions and impediments and cages. And in a closing line that is kind of reminiscent of uh, John Donne's the, the Sun Rising, the, the sun is going to be running after the lovers who are too fast for it. Or perhaps a better way of saying that is that the lovers are going to make time fly. And so ultimately, this is about mastering time, uh, devouring it, inverting its devouring power, that is, by doing what it is that he, at least, wishes they would do with their time. So then, we conclude with the definition of love, which in some ways is the polar opposite of To His Coy Mistress because it is about forces that are against an earthly union. It has to be much more elevated, this love. It has to be about souls in line 10 and minds in line 31. Let's read it in full. My love is of a birth as rare as tis for object strange and high. It was begotten by despair upon impossibility. Magnanimous despair alone could show me so divine a thing, where feeble hope could ne'er have flown, but fain, vainly flapped its tinsel wing. And yet I quickly might arrive where my extended soul is fixed, but... Fate does iron wedges drive and always crowds itself betwixt. For fate with jealous eye does see two perfect loves, nor lets them close. Their union would her ruin be and her tyrannic power depose, and therefore her decrees of steel us as the distant poles have placed. Though love's whole world on us doth wheel, not by themselves to be embraced, unless the giddy heaven fall, and earth some new convulsion tear, and us to join, the world should all be cramped into a planisphere. As lines, so love's oblique may well themselves in every angle greet, 
But ours so truly parallel, though infinite, can never meet. Therefore the love which us doth bind, but fate so enviously debars, is the conjunction of the mind and opposition of the stars. Let's return now to the beginning. In, in line two, the object, strange and high, is the divine thing that is the beloved herself. She is unattainable. This is why impossibility and despair have been the parents of my love. They have begotten my love. His hope can never reach as high as acquiring her, but vainly flapped its tinsel wing. Tinsel means something that glitters with gold or silver thread, but also, also perhaps means uh, something deceptively showy, hence vainly flapping the tinsel wing. But what is really preventing them with its iron wedges, which is a line that is quite analogous to those, those iron grates of life we saw in the last poem, is fate. Fate is jealous. Fate would be ruined by their union. Fate will never let them close, that is to join together the verb. And fate, therefore, has not only iron grates, it wasn't iron grates, it was um, iron wedges, sorry, is, has decrees of steel and has separated the two like the distant poles. Again, something we've seen before, love's whole world on earth doth wheel is rather like Dunn's Good Morrow in line 17 when he talks about the two of them as two different hemispheres. They are at the separate poles of the earth. And unless, in stanza 6, the, the heavens fall and earth tears apart, the, 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 the two of them will not be joined until the world is a, a planisphere, that is a sphere, it's an odd word, a sphere that is depicted on a plane. You've, you have seen, you can imagine those images of the world, the globe, that, is, that are split and curved and cut in such a way that the, 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 the coverage, sorry, the, the surface rather of the globe, the, the sphere of the globe can be shown on a flat map. That is a planisphere. Word of the day. You then have a reference to a ge geometry, like angles and oblique angles and, and so on, but also lines that are parallel. And having just talked about the planisphere, uh, you certainly probably have a sidelong reference anyway to latitude and longitude. Of course, latitude lines all do run parallel to each other and therefore never meet, whereas longitudinal lines all meet at the two poles. And that's um, not dissimilar, I think, to Dunn's valediction to his book. Lines 59 following has some similar lines about, um, well, about these lines on the map. Therefore, the love that fate debars, that fate resists, is, must be restricted entirely to the mind and opposition of the stars, of these larger supernatural forces. Ultimately, the form of this poem is a lament or a complaint, which sets it apart from the others. And it's a rather dispiriting note to end on, but that is the last of our five poems. And 
And now that you've read all five of these Andrew Marvell poems, choose one of them and return to reread it in light of the other four. Ask yourself what features you noticed that are different in light of the others. What did you not notice before that the others make much more explicit and stark? Finally, the most important word that To His Coy Mistress didn't use, that the other four poems used, my answer, at least the one that I noticed anyway, is soul. That poem is about the urgency of sensual pleasures about the body and has no time for such elevated thoughts as you see in the other four. been listening to Open Book, a podcast about interpreting literature with Michael Elliott. The next episode is on the Ojibwe novelist David Truer's The Translation of Dr. Appel's, a 2006 scholarly love story that redefines the Native American novel. Meanwhile, you can search me up in the usual places. It should turn up my blog if you spell my surname, U-L-L-Y-O-T, or go straight there by typing j.mp slash Elliot. You can find me on Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter in descending order of regularity. And then there's old-fashioned email, Elliot at ucalgary, that's U-C-A-L-G-A-R-Y dot C-A. The music from this episode is courtesy of the Open Well-Tempered Clavier Project and performed by Kimiko Ishizaka. Mm-hmm.